Let's pray, friends. Heavenly Father, as the word has now been read to us, and as you prepare us to hear it preached, may your spirit come in power to illuminate your truth found in this text, that our hearts might be ready to receive that truth, and that we might respond as your faithful people with obedience, with repentance, with great trust in your goodness. Lord, we pray that you be glorified in this moment and that we be lifted up and built up. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, for the past month, we have been walking through the prophecy of Micah, and we have been coming across themes of judgment and restoration woven in and out and throughout the book. This, as you recall, was a tumultuous time in Israel's history when they were dealing with internal corruption, ineffective leadership, and invading nations. And now we've seen how this book is not just one sustained prophecy from Micah, but it actually is multiple oracles coming from the prophet delivered at different times under different kings of Judah. Sometimes these prophecies focus on judgment, other times on restoration. Well, now we're in chapter four and the prophecies here took place under the reign of King Hezekiah. So that means that by now the Northern kingdom of Israel has already been annihilated by the Assyrians and the Southern kingdom of Judah is being targeted. And the Assyrians are getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, the capital prophecies of judgment and doom were already issued earlier in chapter three, but here starting in chapter four, Micah begins to offer prophecies of hope and restoration. And our section today is one of those hopeful sections. It's meant to encourage the people of God and it will encourage if they can recognize God's good design to wound them before bringing about a greater healing. He will break them first before assembling them back together, even stronger than before. You see, friends, what we see in the pages of scripture is that God has a preference to work with the wounded, that when God carries out his plans, he likes to use those who walk with a limp those who have gone through a figurative or maybe sometimes even a literal experience of brokenness. Jacob, I think, would be the clearest example in scripture. He was a child of promise, a child of great potential, but his early life was filled with deception and greed. He simply wasn't ready to fulfill God's preordained purposes for his life until he got a limp. He had to be broken first. And once he was, after wrestling with God and receiving a literal limp, Jacob became a new man. He was renamed Israel, the namesake for God's people. Well, the same idea plays out in Joseph's story. He had to spend a significant time in the pits, in the dungeon, before he was ready to carry out God's plan. Moses Well, he had to go through 40 years of obscurity and humility in the wilderness before he was ready to serve the Lord. Samson, he had to lose both his strength and his sight before he was prepared to fulfill God's purpose for his life. And Jonah, well, Jonah had to spend a time out in the belly of a fish before he was good to go to do God's will. 
And even Paul, Paul, he could not have become the courageous and mighty apostle that we all admire, if not for the constant thorn in the flesh that God purposely would not remove. God's grace was enough for him. His sufficient grace left that wound in Paul's side in order to keep him humble, to keep him walking with a figurative limp. And so friends, that's really the point. When carrying out his sovereign purposes, God prefers those who walk with a limp with those who are lame in some way, shape, or form. So what that means then is that if we hope to be useful in God's service, then we must first be broken in his presence. If we want to be effective for God, we must first be humbled by God. That is the lesson that the people of God in Micah's day needed to learn, and they needed to learn it quickly because they were surrounded by an Assyrian army that posed a grave existential threat. Most of the towns and villages and fortified cities throughout the Judean countryside had already been captured. The last holdout was the city of Jerusalem. So by now you have hundreds of thousands of their fellow countrymen already captured, already taken off into exile. Those lucky enough to escape came flooding into Jerusalem, looking for refuge behind its walls. And now a prolonged and bitter siege of the city appeared to be imminent. The Assyrians were coming to finish them off. So you can sense the despair in the air For Micah's audience, when the word of the Lord came again to Micah to speak to God's people, he was speaking to a people who felt very wounded, very defeated, very hopeless. But what he has to say to them offers great hope to those who have ears to hear. Micah assures God's wounded people of three promises. First, the Lord promises to assemble the lame together. Second, the Lord promises to redeem the defeated. And third, the Lord promises to surprise the hopeless. Those are the three promises we're going to see today as we walk through our text. So Micah starts off in verse six by assuring the inhabitants of Jerusalem and and assuring them that their kinsmen who have been driven away, who have been exiled, they have not been forgotten. The Lord, like a good shepherd, will seek them out and will gather them back together into the fold. That's the first promise we see in verses six to eight. The Lord promises to assemble the lame. Let's read verse six again. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Now notice with me how it says the Lord will gather those who have been driven away and those whom he afflicted. Please don't overlook that. Yes, we know that the Assyrians are the ones who attacked and captured these people, but, but superintending all of those events was the invisible providential hand of the Lord. It says that he was the one who afflicted them. 
So that means their exile was ultimately a result of divine discipline. But that really should be no surprise for God's people. It should be no surprise for anyone who has read God's word, who has read specifically Deuteronomy chapter 28, because there the Lord said exactly what would happen if his covenant people were unfaithful to the covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, in verse 25, it says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. Verse 52, they shall besiege you in all of your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. That's exactly what's happening in Micah. My point is, is that God is the one who gave his people their limp. That's how they became lame. We mentioned earlier that that's exactly what happened in Jacob's story. In fact, commentators think that Micah actually had Genesis 32 in mind when he gave this prophecy. Genesis 32 is where Jacob spent all night long wrestling with God. Recall that how he at that time was also in exile. He had been driven away from home. And recall just how off track he was in this in this uh, 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 portion of his, of his journey. He was so far from the land of promise, but through his struggle with God, he came out alive, but of course with a limp, a lifelong limp. But now because he was humbled, because he was broken, he was a new man with a new name. And now he was finally able to go home to be assembled back together again at home. And so you see the same narrative playing out in Micah. God's people were, were, were driven away from home, exiled in a faraway foreign land. They were faithless to his covenant and yet God remained faithful. And so though he disciplines his people, though he does give them a limp, he will not utterly destroy them like a good shepherd. He will gather them wherever they have been scattered and he will bring them home. He speaks in verse seven of making them into a remnant. The Lord says he will preserve a faithful remnant so that his promise to their fathers, his promise to Abraham, that through his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed and that his promise to David, that a descendant of his would rule forever in Zion. It's through this faithful remnant that these promises that he made will stand. They will not be forgotten. And that's what's being emphasized for us in verse eight. There it speaks of a former dominion and a, and a kingship to be restored. And so it's the Lord himself, it says, that will be their one and only king. He will, as it says, reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. That's the fulfillment of the promises he made to David, to Abraham, to all their fathers. Now, when is this day going to occur? When will all of this happen? Well, it says when um, it says for us in verse six. So the question is, when will the Lord assemble his scattered sheep into a faithful remnant that will form this, this strong nation under the rule of the Lord himself? Look in verse six in that day. Now that's a bit 
general there. Which day is that? Well, you really have to go back to verse one in chapter four. We saw that last week there in regard to these prophecies. It says it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now that term there, the latter days, when you find that in prophetic literature, it's referring to an indeterminate um, period of time, marking the end of history as we know it. In other places, it's called the last days. And I know when you hear latter days, last days, it makes you think of the end times. It makes you assume that Micah is describing uh, what's going to occur way off in the future, immediately before the second coming of Christ. But the way that the latter days and the last days is used in scripture refers really to a time period much longer that commenced at the first coming of Christ. And so it means that it's still ongoing to this very day. It means that we are actually living in these latter days. So when did the Lord gather his scattered sheep into a faithful remnant that became a strong nation? When did all of this occur as according to, to Micah four? Well, it's when the Messiah arrived when he came onto the scene over 2000 years ago, identifying himself as that good shepherd, when he promised to gather all of the scattered children of God under one flock and one shepherd, Micah actually points to this coming shepherd King later on in next week's passage in chapter five. So it's all connected. So bottom line, this promise to preserve for himself a, a holy remnant is ultimately fulfilled by the new covenant community of God that we know as the church. Brothers and sisters, we are the remnant. We are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a strong nation, not in terms of political and, and, and uh, military might, but in terms of strength in spirit and in truth. Now, I know when you think about being part of a holy remnant of being among the faithful few, I realize that could easily puff up your pride. It makes you think like you're something special for being part of this chosen remnant. I know that's a real temptation for us, but what's going to bring us down to size is to keep in mind what it says there in verse seven. Look in verse seven, it says, and the lame, I will make the remnant. So the remnant of the Lord is comprised of the lame, the afflicted, the broken. There really is no reason to boast in being a part of God's remnant. And that's really the same point being made elsewhere in scripture, especially in the new Testament in first Corinthians chapter one, verses 26 to 27 there. Uh, we had read that earlier in our home worship. Uh, we are reminded that we, when we were called to Christ, not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so like what we've been saying, God prefers to work with those with a limp. 
His choice is to gather, not the strong and able-bodied, but the lame and limping, and to make them his remnant, his church. Friends, did you realize this kind of brokenness characterizes God's church? That it should characterize you if you are a part of the church. Did you think being chosen by God was meant to be a compliment of you? Did you assume becoming a Christian would privilege you with power or increase your stature in the eyes of the world? If you thought that, you would be sorely mistaken. And it's sadly a mistake that too many people make these days. One sad critique of American Christianity that, Christianity that really comes out on full display during an election season like this is that far too many Christians treat the church as a special interest group or as some kind of political action committee. They're relying on worldly forms of power and influence. They have aligned themselves too closely with one political party or the other. And now as an election is coming, they despair of losing power, of becoming lame. And so to retain that power, they're willing to compromise their values and to defend indefensible people or policies and all the while obscuring their Christian witness. Micah 4 reminds us not to fear the loss of worldly power and influence because we are supposed to be a people who walk with a limp. We are followers of a crucified savior who was despised and rejected by men. So that means our distinct witness as his disciples is at risk of being obscured if we despise our limp And if we desire after worldly power, friends, let's recover our identity as those who are weak in this world, as those who are lame and those who have a limp, a limping remnant of the Lord. So friends, the first promise in our text is this promise to assemble, to regather the lame, to not leave them scattered in exile. Well, the second promise is to not leave them abandoned in defeat. Look with me in verses nine to 10. We'll see our second point that the Lord promises to redeem the defeated. So verse nine is a question. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no King in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. So earlier, Micah addressed the Jews who had been scattered afar here. Now in verses nine to 10, he shifts his attention to the inhabitants of Jerusalem who have so far escaped capture. And yet they find themselves under threat under the looming shadow of the Assyrian empire. Now verse nine is comprised of a series of rhetorical questions by asking, why are you crying? Is there no King among you? Now that could be construed as a criticism aimed directly at Hezekiah for his failed leadership, or it could be just a more general criticism of the people of Jerusalem for not turning to God as their true and rightful King. It could be for their failure to trust in the Lord because they are leaning on their own understanding. They're they're trusting in their own counselors, in their chariots, in their horses, in their own might. Micah explains that that's why great pain and anguish afflicts you. 
Now, let's not soft pedal the horrific atrocities they experienced under the threat of the Assyrians. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was notorious for its cruelty and its ruthlessness against its enemies. Historical records tell us of how they would, they would flay their victims alive. They would impale them on stakes. They would cut off their noses and ears or simply decapitate them. And these forms of torture were not just reserved for men of war. No, they would inflict these things even on women and children. And so it's no wonder that God's people were crying out and they were writhing and, and groaning like a woman in labor. That's how they're, de they're described in verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem were under an excruciating degree of pain, as it's described here. And it was a pain that would not subside quickly. Notice how Micah at the end of verse 10 forewarns of a future Babylonian exile. But remember at that time, the Babylonians weren't even the major threat. It was the Assyrians, but historical accounts tell us in second Kings or in second Chronicles that Jerusalem does survive the Assyrian threat. But over a hundred years later in 586 BC, the Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar finally overthrew Jerusalem, took captive the vast majority of the population and exiled them to Babylon. So just think of this. This is over a hundred years. Think of this as an extremely long labor over a hundred years of contractions. For all of you mothers out there who have experienced birth pangs, I'm sure you can sympathize with the daughter of Zion, with the people of Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, anyone who is a mother can tell you that what sustained them through the painful labor, through the contractions, through the excruciating pain was the hope of new life in the end. The new life of that baby is what gets her through her pain. And so what a fitting analogy for Micah to use in verses nine to 10. He's not sugarcoating anything. Jerusalem's downfall. It won't be immediate, but it will be painful all the way up leading to her eventual defeat. And so like in labor, a very long labor, the pain will be sharp. The pain will be great, but this kind of pain will result in new life in place in the place of your defeat in the pits of Babylon, there you will find rescue. Listen to the rest of verse 10. There you shall be rescued there. The Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So Micah's point is that God's people should yield themselves to the discipline of the Lord to receive their due punishment to sit under his heavy hand, to humble themselves before the Lord and to accept the limp that he gives them. And then wait there, wait on the Lord, wait there for wherever he has you and for however long it takes until he himself comes to the rescue until the Lord himself redeems you. And I know friends, it's, it's hard to wait. 
I, I, I understand that when, you, when you're under the heavy hand of God's discipline, it feels like you're defeated. It feels like he's done with you. It feels like he's abandoned you. But what if he's waiting for your pride to break? What if he is waiting for you to renounce any reliance anymore on your own strength and the fully trust in him? Aaron Bonar, a 19th century Scottish pastor, once explained how in the highlands of Scotland, sheep would sometimes wander off into the rocky crags and they would get trapped onto dangerous ledges. You see, as they're looking for grass, they they would see grass below them uh, on a ledge and they would actually leap down to eat the grass. And as they are now on this very thin, dangerous precipice, they get stuck and they're unable to climb back up. Well, Bonar goes on to explain that a shepherd would typically allow the helpless sheep to remain there on that ledge for days until it gets so weak that it can't stand on its own. And only then will the shepherd tie a rope around his waist and go over the edge to go down and rescue the stray sheep. Now, someone once asked him, why does a shepherd wait so long? Why does he let the sheep suffer? Why doesn't he just go down right away? And he replied that it's because sheep are so foolish and so easily startled that they would dash right over the edge to their demise. If the shepherd didn't wait until their strength was nearly gone. Well, friends, I think that's what God was doing in Micah's day. He was letting his people writhe and and groan in pain, suffering under the consequences of their own sin. I know it might seem cruel. I know it might appear as if he abandoned them, but he was actually waiting for their strength to go and their pride to break. Only then would they be ready to be redeemed. Well, friends, I think God still operates in the same way for us today. For those of you who feel defeated, who feel like God has abandoned you. We do sympathize with the pain and the anguish that you are going through, but could it be, could it be that God is waiting for your strength to be sapped and your pride to be broken? Perhaps what you need is a new perspective to see your pain, not as punishment, not as torture anymore, but instead to see it as birth pangs what inevitably is going to come before the arrival of new life, a new life that God is going to bring forth in you by the goodness of his grace. I pray that you through this text might, might have the eyes to see your situation, your circumstances now in a newer light. Well, friends, we've seen the Lord's promise to assemble the lame and to redeem the defeated Lastly here, we see how the Lord promises to surprise the hopeless. That's the third point we find in this last section in verses in chapter four, verse 11 to chapter five, verse one, which actually in Hebrews, in Hebrew Bibles, chapter five, verse one is actually marked as chapter four, verse 14. So that's why we lumped them together. This Oracle is being addressed to the same audience as before in the second point uh, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem as they're being surrounded by the Assyrians, who, by the way, were experts in siege warfare. And that's uh, described for us in verse 11. Excuse me. 
Let's read verse 11. Now, many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. So the Assyrians and all their mercenary nations that they compiled together were set upon Jerusalem, set upon humiliating their foe. They didn't just want to beat you. They wanted to rub your face in the dirt and call you names. And that's what chapter five, verse one alludes to. Let me read that. Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now that is a reference to King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria during that time and his siege of Jerusalem that took place in 701 BC. There are ancient extra biblical records of this event, uh, records outside of the Bible that is. But scripturally, if we want to find out more about this event, we have to just turn to 2 Kings chapter 18 or an identical account in Isaiah 36. And there we will read of the account when King Sennacherib sent his Rebshaka, which is basically an official emissary, a messenger, an official messenger with a message to Hezekiah demanding that he surrender the city. So when Micah says in chapter five, verse one, that the judge of Israel referring to the king would be struck on the cheek with a rod, that's really a a Hebrew idiom for humiliation. It's suggesting that you're just so weak, you can't even defend a slap against your face. But that is what happened to Hezekiah. We're told in second Kings chapter 18, that the king of Judah tried to hold off Sennacherib's attack by sending him an apology, sending him gifts of tribute, but it didn't work. And now this Rabshaka is at the gate hurling insults and taunts at Hezekiah and all the people. He says things like, Hey, let's make a wager. I'll give you 2000 horses. If you can even find 2000 guys to ride on them in the battle. Or he says, don't you guys realize that it's the Lord, it's Yahweh who is sending us to destroy this place. We are doing the Lord's bidding. So just surrender already. What he says to them, how he insults them is so demoralizing. It's so humiliating. It is like Hezekiah getting slapped in the face having a a shoe thrown at him, having his pants pulled down to his ankles, choose your idiom, however you want to describe it. He is just going to show how bad this situation is. The Assyrians clearly have the upper hand. There was no question in their minds that Jerusalem would fall before them. It was highly improbable that the city could withstand an Assyrian siege. But that's what makes what actually happened that much more surprising and inspiring. Little did the Assyrians know that their siege of Jerusalem was actually the Lord's doing. He was the one gathering them together around the city so that he might thresh them into pieces. Listen to verses 12 to 13. But they, the Assyrians, do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horns iron and I will make your hooves bronze and you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. 
It was probably hard to believe, but here Jerusalem is being described as a powerful ox that is set to trample on the Assyrians like sheaves on a threshing floor. You see, oxen were sometimes used to tread over sheaves of grain in order to physically separate the wheat from the chaff. So those horns of iron, those hooves of bronze are images designed to convey great strength in Jerusalem. Now, I don't think anyone would have described Jerusalem that way in that moment. Not even its own inhabitants. They felt helpless. They felt hopeless. They were just waiting for the inevitable But of course, a surprising, unexpected turn of events took place as it's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 19. In 2 Kings 19 verse 34, the Lord promises to personally defend the city in order to save it. He says, I will do this for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Now, some have theorized that there must have been some deadly outbreak that hit the camp or some other natural explanation, but scripture doesn't hesitate to attribute that to the hand of the Lord because that's what he does. He takes what appears to be a certain defeat, a situation where your enemies are are gloating over you, where you feel utterly helpless and hopeless, and he will totally surprise everyone with an unlikely victory. God did that countless times in Israel's history, back in their wilderness days when they were under the leadership of Moses and then under Joshua, and, and also during the time of the judges and under the kingship of David, he would outwit his enemies. He outwitted the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Medes and Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. Each time a seemingly greater power looked poised to inflict a certain defeat upon God's people. But each time those who were gloating suddenly find, find themselves trampled underfoot by a lame limping remnant of the people of God. These kinds of surprising, unlikely victories keep occurring in the pages of scripture until they culminate on the cross. And that is where the Lord outwitted a boastful enemy in the devil and all his demons. They gloated at the foot of the cross when it appeared that the Messiah had failed to do his mission. The one man that God's people were pinning all of their hopes on was hanging there on a Roman cross. And they thought they had won. But by the third day, the devil and all his demons found themselves trampled underfoot by a resurrected Messiah. Jesus surprised everyone with an unlikely victory. Who could have imagined that through his death, he would secure salvation and new life for all who trust in him. That through a shameful death on a cross, Jesus would exalt God's people and put to shame all of his enemies. Friends, please take comfort in that gospel truth. There will be times in life when it appears that you are surrounded by enemies and abandoned by God. 
Things may appear utterly hopeless. And maybe for some of you, that time is right now. It's happening in your life in this moment. Just remember, my friends, that those are just the right kind of times and just the right kind of conditions for God to bring about an unexpected victory. Though you may be wounded, though you may be limping and lame, you are certainly not forgotten. You are not abandoned by our God. That's the hope. That's the hope we find in our passage today. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this prophecy of hope and restoration that no matter how difficult our circumstances, no matter how dark the storm in our lives, Lord, you are faithful and you will work through our weakness. You will work through our limp to bring about a powerful, unlikely victory for your glory and for the good and the strengthening of your people. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.